Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Green Left, Radio, Green Left Radio and, um, of course, Friday Breakfast. My co-presenters have disappeared or they haven't turned up yet for whatever reason. So I hope you're having a good morning. Um, we shall start with acknowledgement of land. We respect, uh, we, we pay our respects to the elders of the land of the Wurundjeri Kulin Nation. And this land was never ceded. We remain, it remains a stolen land. We have a lot of questions answered in relation to the massacre of the Aboriginal people and how we captured this land. Uh, now, um, we have a number of um, interviews coming up. Um, we, we will discuss the attack on, of course, Ms. Dixon. You're a DC, I think her first name is. I hope I'm, I'm, I'm pronouncing it right. Um, the horrible um, incident um, had obviously touched the hearts of many, and we had 10,000, more than 10,000 people who gathered um, to pay their respects and mourn the um, horrible um, rape and murder of this poor woman who was uh, about to get home. Um, it's a reflection of uh, what's happening in society today, and we shall uh, talk a little bit more in detail about that uh, later on. Uh, we have an interview lined up uh, with Sir Bol- Sue Bolton, who is the councillor for Moorland, about this. Um, and we also have another interview um, with Lydia Thorpe, who is the Green, uh, Greens representative uh, in uh, Batman. And is it Batman? And um, we will... Uh, that, that noise you hear is Jacob just arriving. Good morning, Jacob. Um, we will talk about the secretaries being uh, cut down in Ararat. We'll talk about the treaty um, and any other questions pertaining to um, the progress of any um, Aboriginal issues that are coming up. And Iraq Week is also coming up soon. So there are a number of issues we want to talk to um, Lilith about. Um, so we shall start. Uh, you want to say good morning to the listeners, um, Jacob, and which mic you're on too? Yeah, so good morning, listeners. Um, yeah, I just arrived a bit late. Um, so, um, guess, have we discussed any kind of things that news that kind of have happened in the headlines? No, yeah. no, I'm just um, briefing uh, listeners about the interviews that are coming up at the stage, and uh, we should go on to that. And this morning it's good to hear that Trump has reversed his child separation policy. Um, apparently is due to his daughter and wife intervening in the debate, but who knows? Hmm. So that's well, it seems um, it actually um, just a bit of an observation that I kind of made in response to that. It, it actually seems to be easier to turn Trump around 
on certain issues <laughs> than it is to turn our own Australian government. I know. You're talking about the budget, I assume. No, not about the budget. No, I'm talking about more in terms of the whole refugee rights movement. Um, in fact, that is actually, you know, that is actually a kind of a pretty big concession that the Trump has given in response to social movements, whereas, you know, we've had a very consistent and pretty strong refugee rights movement, and yet the government doesn't even seem close to budging on the whole detention centre question. Yes, that's that's an ongoing issue, isn't it? Never-ending trauma. Never, it's, it's sorrowful, actually, when you look at what's happening to refugees around the world. I tried to point out some articles about the Europe refugee situation, but I guess we should also talk about our local refugee situation um, and the the fact that the Sri Lankan family are about to be deported to Sri Lanka. Um, the, the, the husband was... Um, I should get the names here, um, has, um, was deported some time ago, and we have little news about what happened to him um, while he, when he got back there. And um, we, are, we hear in news that um, Priya, the little girl who turned three uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and her mother uh, are going to be deported. Um, so exactly what, what's happening, we're not entirely sure. Um, so it's it's very sad to to see news like that uh, coming up um, about our own refugee policies being um, very cruel to say the least, and that's that's saying it nicely. Uh, is in complete breach of human rights, um, uh, the Human Rights uh, Convention of the United Nations. But anyway, um, so. Do you have any other news? That you uh, yeah, just, um, this is a, a, a kind of um, a it's kind of like almost a positive news story, um, but also kind of funny one um, just to comment on. Um, but there was actually a, a, poll, a recent poll recently um, that you know showed that people born between 1980 and 1996 in Australia, also known as millennials, uh, in Australia are favourable to at least 58% are favourable to socialism or ideas around socialism. Uh, 59% think that capitalism has failed um, and that and 62% um, think workers are worse worse, worse off, off. Than, um, than 40 years ago. Yeah. And um, it was kind of funny because just earlier yesterday I was listening to um, kind of the right-wing commentary from Alan Jones and Tom Switzer and they were kind of like really you know worked up about these results and a bit horrified uh, in fact what are the, their explanation for it wasn't you know they didn't because they're complete defenders of capitalism they basically said that you know the reason why you know millennials or young people uh think like this is because of the education system it's because of the marxist education that young people are receiving which to my mind i'm not sure if that actually exists in our education system and i actually think it's kind of denying the fact that i actually think you know the reason why you know a lot of young people are thinking this is because based on their own kind of concrete kind of experiences of capitalism, it isn't. The system isn't actually working. I mean, you have this, the housing unaffordability, um, you have casualization of work, um, you also have the issues of the environment um, and how we're living in a time where climate change is a fact. It's accelerating at an a, a exponential rate. Um, and But what you're seeing from our governments is not any kind of 
real kind of political leadership in addressing from what you're seeing is our governments are, you know, bending over backwards to build a massive coal mine, and especially in the case of Australia, and then but you're also seeing it in the um, such things in the United States and Canada. Um, I guess another uh, another sort of factor also as well is well. One of the things that, were, that was a bit contradictory in their commentary that was they were trying to point out that, oh, yes, all, all these um, young people don't know about the horrors of Lenin, Stalin and Mao, Mao which yeah. is a bit contradictory, I think, because they were also insisting that, um, you know, sh- um, children today are receiving education from Marxist ed- teachers, which I just think is a bit contradictory in terms, because surely if there was this um, overflow of Marxists in the education system. Surely they would be teaching um, kids about, you know, the they wonders should, of Lenin. They should be teaching. <laughs> it is provoking critical thinking. You know, you you need you need to offer kids ideas that they can critique and uh, debate and form their own conclusions. And that goes to religion too. Mm-hmm. Instead of just grooming them in one way of thinking, you 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 offer them information and let them discuss and actually. Um, Use, use their own way of, of, of thinking about a particular issue and debate it with other people who have different ways of looking at it. Anyway, talking about the education system, there's a big debate about the, um, the uh, NAPLAN plan, uh, NAPLAN, um, scheme as well. But the, yeah, so I just want one last thing to comment on is there's a, there is also this push from the more conservative forces in, uh, um, in Australia from the more right wing, um, around this whole, critique or criticism that our education system doesn't sufficiently celebrate Western culture enough. Ah, uh, what? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's sort of the argument. And so, I mean, this all came from Tony Abbott back in when he was Prime Minister, that, you know, the curriculum needs to reflect, you know, the values of, of the greatness of Western civilization. And it talks too much about the negative, not like you can actually not talk about the negative. Um, and, of course, I think it's also... Ridiculous because I don't think um, the education system is particularly that anti-colonialist and that anti-imperialist. But you know the fact that the fact that you know have the right angry about the fact that you know people um, children are being it's in the curriculum that you know children have to be taught about you know Aboriginal um, rights and it's also mandatory in the curriculum that we actually do actually have to. Ma- Acknowledge some of the crimes of, you know, colonialism. They need to be taught the real history of the, of the nation and the world, not just cover up for the, the colonizers and invaders and murderers. Like, I mean, it's great that Batman is now, the federal seat's been renamed um, Cooper, which is fantastic. Um, it's a good start, but there's a long way to go yet. They need to change. My, my daughter was saying, What's the point of changing the name of the electorate, Mark? But they have to change the name of the park. There's a Batman park <laughs> not far from where we live. And she was furious that that hadn't been changed as well. So there's um, interesting discussions about, you know, the, the way people, young people think. Um, and I, I think one of the main contributors to this also is social media. Young people are getting news from all different sources as opposed to the mainstream. And they also think... Um, think differently uh, from the the older generation, so it's it's obvious that you know they um, will uh, have a different framework for thinking as well. Um, they look at social media, they look at what they they are being taught, they look at how their parents behave and the previous generation behaved and what's been going on. They they are silly, um, so 
given that the education levels have risen despite um, what criticisms we have of the education system, there are more literate people in Australia, I guess, in a long time. Um, some people do think, and, and young people, you know, especially now, there's, there, there are people from all over the world studying here, and therefore there is that mingling and that, that interaction between them and exchanging views, which is really, really important. Um, that obviously builds um, their knowledge, the, their attitude, and um, the, the, the span of, of ideas they come across obviously educate them. But um, let's have a quick break. Welcome back to um, Green Life Weekly Radio and um, Friday Breakfast at 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the Palestinians. I think it's basically um, take, taken off the news um, and it's not been discussed but it's all over the social media sites whether it's Twitter or, or, or Facebook or whatever people relate to um, the, the Palestinians and um, killed and injured while participating in mass and non-violent resistance on the Gaza border continues to mount and increase and add to that what's happening is Yemen as well Israel has sought to deflect uh, culpability uh, by by blaming the Hamas and other Palestinian terror organizations. This, this seems to be like a mantra. They repeat it each time, you know. It's like, oh, it's a terrorist. Whatever they do, it's a terrorist who do it. And then you see on Facebook all these images of two-year-olds and one-year-olds being, you know, have their, having their gun held at their face or, or this massive soldier standing over them. It's absolutely disgraceful what's happening in, in, in Palestine. Um, this and, and you'll find that this, this, this excuse, Hamas and the, that Palestinian terror organizations, um, is, is, is if quite an ignorant, a little ignorant, um, excuse, but a, a conducive one for Israel. So this is a lie according to, um, Shamik Badra, a Palestinian student from Gaza who uh, played a key role in the civil society groups and initiated this historic non-violent resistance action. He, um, Badra now, um, is pursuing a postgraduate studies in, in Australia and he told Green Left that the idea was first floated in 2015 by a young um, youth wing of the uh, Palestinian People's Party which he was um, leading. In an article published by Al-Watan, Badra wrote that we proposed that the Palestinians should create a gap instead of the buffer zone. I think the Al Shagaya area in, is the best place for the gap because it is close to um, the center of um, Gaza Strip. The idea, Badra explained, was to create squares of resistance and widen this gap through rehabilitation, reclaiming lands by planting, tree, planting trees and paving the roads to facilitate the use of ambulances and cars. So such voluntary initiatives could help the farmers. There should be they should also prepare um, and supply first aid um, points and water inside the zone. So rallies, demonstrations and festivals can be organized in this area and the landmark for nonviolent resistance. So it goes on uh, talking about, um, you know, the, the positive changes that could be made to stop this, uh, this insane violence that's going on in um, Palestine. So Palestinians are hoping, he says, that this march that they had organized um, will lead to a third intifada. Despite Israeli crimes against the civilians, Gaza will resist the oppression and the occupation and injustice. So it's, I, I, I don't know how to describe it anymore. I think we've spent many hours talking about this sort of stuff. And um, 
the, the fact that, that uh, now the U.S. has um, taken itself off the U, uh, United Nations Human Rights Commission is telling about um, their future plans and what they actually want to do. Um, they want to continue um, supporting Israel's massacre that's going on. They want to continue um, massacring or, or supporting the massacres of, of the Yemeni people um, and supporting, supporting the Saudis. So, in a way, it's, it's, it's a reign of capital. The reign of the very rich is what we're seeing, and that's heartbreaking. So we need to look out for organizations that are supporting the people of Palestine, the people of Yemen who actually want to fight back. So people should, should get onto the, to, to the Internet and start looking at um, how they can protest or support the people, uh, protest the acts, the violent acts, and support the people of, of these two countries, at least for a start. Never mind the, all the other uh, the violence that are occurring in the Middle East, with Turkey and uh, with the Kurds and so on. It, it's just a never-ending story in that area. Now, I, I want. I, I guess I, it would, um, there's an article in Green Left Weekly that I just want to sort of give a bit of a summary about, which relates to Palestine solidarity. Yeah. Um, but it's also a good way of connecting to the World Cup <laughs> this year. <laughs> um, but although oh, yeah, this doesn't yeah, really yeah. have anything to do with the World <laughs> Cup, other than it relates to soccer, because. Um, this team is not really participate. Um, this is has any active role in the World Cup because Scotland aren't in. Um, so you know, I think one one sort of highlight of you know um, one there's one football team I think in the entire world that has I guess a very strong history of um, solidarity with Palestine and that is um, Celtic FC, um, the Glasgow-based club um, in the Scottish Football League. Um, you know, which has always been you know showing consistent, which is always known like whenever you go to a Celtic. Um, F football club game, um, there's always like, you know, strong support of, you know, lots of Palestinian flags. And whenever there's always a, you know, a big sort of event that has happened around Palestine and in Israel, um, their, their fans and supporters are always the first to kind of, you know, make a big of a, a bit of a fuss about it during their, um, during the games. And I guess, um, just a bit of history and context. Um, Celtic FC was founded in Glasgow, Scotland, um, in 1887 by brother Matt Wildfred. Um, and one of the intents, um, the purpose of this was, um, was to help, you know, the poor immigrant Irish population who had fled to Scotland after being displaced from their land. Of course, many were, um, fleeing from the hunger enveloping their land back home. Um, you know, at that time, you know, Scotland was primarily um, Protestant um, and treated Irish Catholics as second-class citizens with open prejudice and hostility. And that's sort of where the foundation um, for the, the kind of rivalry with the Glasgow um, Rangers um, Football Club, which are kind of considered the arch um, rivals of Celtic. You know, they traditionally drew support from the city's Protestant community, which with fans often supporting pro-British causes. Um, and I think one of the things, the reasons why a lot of, um, you know, a lot of fans of this, of Celtic FC have always consistently supported, um, Palestine is because, because of its kind of being the symbol of uh, the Irish struggle, um, against British imperialism. They're sort of like, they see kind of the commonalities in their kind of struggle and that's sort of what's lent itself to the, a lot of Celtic FC fans lean support. And I think, you know, um, for a lot of Celtic FC fans, you know, their displays of solidarity are a way of showing that, um, the Palestinian people that they're not forgotten. Um, and this article, which you can kind of read on the, in the latest screen left weekly, um, concludes on the note that 
international solidarity now more than ever is greatly needed in the world as a way for all the dispossessed and the oppressed people to finally come together and tear down um, this terrible system. And it is possible that Celtic FC fans have shown the rest of us the way forward. Absolutely. I agree. Um, if you, have you got the article there about um, the vote by the ALP conference and the CFMU's role in, in not supporting the refugee um, thing by Zane Alcon, our co-presenter. I think that'll be an interesting article to look at because he talks about um, how the rank and file in the CFMU were actually against that motion. Um, he, he says that the, the polls of the majority of Australians um, show that there is enormous support for refugees and certainly the CFMU membership um, are very much uh, in favour of supporting refugees and this was more a political move within the CFMU leadership to support the ALP in its um, stop the boat policy um, and, and that's very disappointing um, to, to see that um, you know it, it, it's so clear and has been going on for years now. Um, so assuming that the majority of Australians were fooled into hating refugees, although several polls from the recent show that that's not the case, should trade unions just give up on being a voice for refugees? So it, 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 it goes into looking at the question of should trade unions just look at wages and conditions what is the role of trade unions in social issues? And the refugees issue, issue is a political, socio-political issue, an important human rights issue as well. So people in different unions um, have to think about this because, you know, if it's only wages and, and, and conditions, then really they, um, the, the main pillar of support for social issues, fighting for social issues, and, and one avenue through which people can organise to fight for their own rights um, is not being recognised. So should trade unions just give up on the on, on a voice to to address human rights issues? Because mm. the, the the CFME also suffers the, the issues of, of workers dying on the job um, and many other uh, issues pertaining to human rights, which is no different, not much different from other human rights suffered by people outside the unions. So that is a question, and it's being discussed very critically in this particular article. I think it's an excellent article. Do you want to add to it? Well, I think um, one thing I think that's important to mention is um, in terms of kind of the analysis that Zane kind of comes forward, a lot of the reason why the main, I, this is what I see as kind of like the main reason why you can have this situation where the CFMU, you know, behind closed doors can be all like, yep, we support refugees, we completely, you know, stand for we think that, you know, we think what the government is doing around uh, detention camps is wrong. But then on in the public sphere, you have this situation because of their ties to the Labor Party and for, you know, obviously kind of like, you know, opportunistic kind of reasoning on the basis that, you know, if we help the ALP, they'll give us concessions for our industrial relations policy that will, su- for the, towards, um, that will support our workers. Um, the fact is they're willing to, what it kind of shows is the union leadership is willing to compromise um, on the question of refugees if it means that they can get the Labor Party to support them in terms of industrial relations, which, which really actually just shows how, you know, 
has screwed up the kind of um, relationship Logic. between. Like, or it just shows the the kind of necessity of um, of shine of attempting to build a left alternative to the Labor Party because for a lot of unions they see the Labor Party are so hegemonic um, in the union movement that they see there's no alternative but to go along with what the ALP machine says. Well, I think part of the reason is. You know, they've done this for a long time, since the attack on the BLFs in the old days, uh, from the 80s. Um, and hence, you know, that, that mentality of self-defense is, seems exacerbated itself. And one of the other things is, of course, the, the ABCC, which they've been fighting for some time now. So it, it, they've gone into defensive mode, uh, not realizing the implications of, of this all, you know, I have to look after myself and my union members in this particular area um, seems to overwhelm them in relation to this particular issue. And uh, refugees issue, the thing is, they need, they need the support of refugees and asylum seekers, um, not just behind. The CFMU cannot survive without um, the support of, of people in general and, and, and refugees who come here, the migrants who come here who relate to the refugees and, and any, any decent human being who can see this issue, um, you know, will, will not understand what is wrong, um, you know, in, in relation to, to why this trade union, that such a strong trade union has been a good example in fighting, um, the, the attacks on, on, organization that represent workers and, and people um, that doesn't support refugees. It's, it's, it's rather confusing uh, for many people, um, I think. And this is a great article if um, you want some clarification. In fact, there are two articles about it. So we shall um, move on to the next story after that, and I hope you get hold of that article and, and get, it, get a chance to read it. So I just want to talk a little bit more about um, another issue, an international issue, which is the the huge mobilizations in um, London recently, a 10,000 strong uh, extreme right-wing mobilization um, that happened, and it happened in the name of freedom of speech. So the second, um, the, the first, I guess, this is an article that was written by Andy Storr from um, the Socialist Resistance. And he um, theorizes or, or tries to explain the situation. I guess it's first, it's a number who turned out, which is about 10,000. It's the most frequently shared um, estimate. Um, a huge display of racist supporting Robinson, Tommy Robinson, uh, who was actually, um, in, who was actually in prison. Um, for these Islamophobic um, criminal acts, English Defence League co-founder. Yeah, and um, the second reason is he's the second reason is dimension. He says is um, that this a Dutch politician, uh, Gert Wilders. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Who told the crowd, Tommy Robinson is the greatest freedom fighter of Britain today. So it's it's almost Trump-like. Um, use of vocabulary there. So Tommy Ro- Tommy Robinson is is portrayed as a freedom fighter. So what what he says, what one dare not say, and it's, again, it's it's very much along the the Trump um, uh, trajectory. So the message uh, f- of support was also received from leading United States white nationalist Steve Bannon. And there were reportedly protests outside a number of British embassies and consulates. So the third is a huge number of 
uh, English flags and Union Jacks that are being flown. So he actually talks about how the, the this sort of mobilizations have occurred despite the fact that there's a rise in the left with the uh, Corbyn leading the charge, um, he he seems to explain that Brexit seems to have uh, provoked such um, nationalism among the English, and and it's interesting his his article. So I encourage people to to get hold of it or get on the internet, and we'll put a link in the um, podcast if you want to listen to it later, or if you want to read it later. So. That's an interesting explanation. So he goes into why and how it, it has has actually happened. And uh, I can imagine because I lived in England in the days of um, Enoch Powell and there were a group called Bobber Boys who used to be, who used to put, you know, purport the sort of nationalism. Okay, uh, we've just got a very a very quick announcement and we go on to the next interview. Is she, is she online already? Yes. Yep. Okay, so we shall maybe go straight to the um, interview and then... Um, have a chat about Eurydice Dixon and, and, and women's yeah, issues. Eurydice Dixon. Good morning, sir. Hi, how's it going? I just, oh, we didn't really make a proper introduction. Yeah, yeah, so I, I did before. But oh, well, anyway. we didn't get the full name. Go okay. ahead. So on, on the line we have um, Sue Bolton, who is a Social Alliance Councillor um, for Moreland um, and has also been quite, you know, active on women's rights issues. So we're going to have a bit of a kind of political discussion um, with her following kind of the the death and murder of Eurydice Dixon, which um, happened last week. And obviously people probably have heard um, heard about the massive vigil that happened um, on over 10,000 people in Princess Park. Um, and so if we want to kind of have a bit of a you know, discussion kind of with Sue about sort of the political implications and sort of the core, what she thinks of kind of in terms of the causes of violence against women. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll just have a... So, Sue, I guess the first kind of question is, I mean, what is kind of like, you know, what do you think this... Um, your DC is kind of deaf in terms of the, con- the broader kind of political context of kind of like, you know, violence and sexism against women? Well... I guess, I mean, probably, I mean, really just that it's very simplest form. It just really um, indicates the level of sexism in society. And, um, I mean, it has been interesting, the um, political response to, um, to um, the whole question of safety of women, um, you know, after the... Um, after the police statement around um, which sort of implied um, that women, you know, shouldn't walk around late at night by themselves if they really want to be safe. Um, and there was, been, it was a huge outpouring of women's sentiment saying that this was really very much victim-blaming. But I think, you know, just the fact that the number of women um, who, who are killed... Um, is an indication of a massive, uh, you know, is an indication of misogyny and sexism and, and so forth in society um, because, you know, it's often termed as gendered violence um, because the biggest preventable cause of women's death um, is... Um, male violence against women, although that is primarily in the home. It, like the the um, murder of Eurydice is absolutely tragic, but that is not the common uh, common form of violence against women. I mean, of course, there is a lot of 
groping of women and so forth in public places, but um, the really um, the biggest killer of women is intimate partner violence or ex-partner violence uh, against women, um, and but also the murder of a total stranger, a stranger woman, i.e. Eurydice, and, and an earlier one that really caught people's imagination, Jill Ma in Brunswick in 2012. I mean, this is, you know, it's a, it's a signal of that as well. And while, yes, it is violence uh, against young men and so forth, it's of a different, a different type of violence. Um, because in cases like Eurydice and Jilma and many others, it's usually um, murder and violence is connected with sexual assault and rape. I guess, I mean, interesting enough, um, there was another tragic um, story that actually just appeared in the headlines this morning um, that apparently, um, you know, a woman, uh, there was a group of, um, a couple of women who were, I think, um, out on Sunday night um, near Carlton and it's, um, what has happened is one of them has been um, sexually assaulted um, and the perpetrator um, is basically on the run at this point. Um, But what was interesting is um, following um, that police response um, to Eurydice's death, um, the police actually made a statement um, to the effect that basically did not uh, indicate any kind of victim blaming whatsoever, which sort of shows that there is um, hope. <laughs> oh, well, well, what it shows to me is not that the police are inherently like you know becoming good or all of a sudden. What it just shows to me is that the police are starting. To, there is some serious social pressure. They're responding to that mobilization and they're taking note of the fact that people are not going to put up with the the attitude portrayed by the police force towards crimes like this, belittling women, berating women. Um, You've got to be safe. You have to dress like this. You you, you shouldn't wear makeup. You shouldn't be out at 4 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock. None of your business one time I go out and go for a walk. Why are you attacking me? I mean, that, that, that attitude is coming through. So they're responding to public pressure, and that means um, they have to also look at um, educating their force about how they approach these issues. That's, mm. that's a key thing, you know. And if you've got the police force defending the offenders, uh, the perpetrators, then we have a huge problem. So this is a good, it's a good issue. Um, not quite there yet, but anyway. Sorry, Sue. Um, one of the questions I wanted to pose to you. Did you want? To, did you pose a question? Um, um, I sort of wanted. To, I guess following that, I wanted to sort of pose that there's a kind of question of you know, sort of which way kind of forward in terms of like mobilisation around this issue that can sort of put this kind of at the forefront, especially following um, the fact that there was such a strong movement um, mm. following Jill Mayer's death. Um, Jill Mayer and Jill Mayer. Yeah. yeah. Well, I definitely think there needs to be a follow-up action after the vigil because I think the vigil wasn't able to be a political response and partly because, you know, there are many people in Melbourne who know Eurydice and her family. Um, So um, this was a family who was well-known, not just in general, but in the Melbourne left as well. Um, they were a family who were active on a range of issues in uh, in Melbourne, in particular around the issue of public housing, um, 
And so, you know, a lot of people were very shocked um, by Eurydice's murder. There are friends, family, schoolmates of um, of Eurydice's and, and friends of the father and um, Eurydice's brother um, because sadly um, Eurydice's mother passed away when she was a, a young young child. Um, so there was a lot of grieving and, and so the vigil was... Um, a response to a number of things. It was a response to women wanting to speak out against police victim blaming. It was also an opportunity for women to grieve, like people who, not just women, men as well. There were many men there um, at the vigil. Um, it was an opportunity for people to grieve about their friend or family member or schoolmate um, who'd, who'd been murdered. And then also I think there was an element of uh, people who sort of did want to come together in a vigil kind of sense um, over the potential, you know, fears about their own daughters or maybe over their own experiences. So it was described by the organisers as gentle resistance, um, but not the time uh, not the time for political statements. So the organisers were having a discussion uh, yesterday, I think, or the night before, uh, about potential political action, because I think this is the next step. Um, what sorts of demands do we need to make to make women safer? Now, of course, the police and the right wing will try and push things in a law and order, a law and order direction, but I think that is would be a big mistake to let them push it in that direction. What we really need to do to make streets safer for women is to make it safer for people to come out at night and, and walk around because people finish work at, you know, midnight, 2am when there isn't much public transport around. Um, there should be, you know, frequent public transport throughout the night. I mean, OK, yes, the Andrews government did introduce all-night public transport on the weekend, as in once an hour um, on the weekend. But really, um, a lot of people aren't going to wait an hour. I mean, people will find other ways home. So, you know, people need access to public transport. Um, but we also need to, we need to focus on prevention. Um, there's no point throwing CCTV cameras everywhere um, because that doesn't prevent things from happening. This particular park, there were a lot of, I, I gather there were CCTV cameras there. It's well lit. So it's not a, an issue of lighting and <coughs> CCTV cameras. Um, we actually, the lion's share of money should go into um, trying into prevention and changing attitudes and making uh, making it, you know, public spaces safer or safer for women and men as well, but um, women overwhelmingly to get home at night um, by having frequent public transport. The idea of, you know, what the logical implication of what the police said of um, women should, you know, should be situationally aware, yes. <laughs> i.e. not walk around in lonely places late at night, is... You know, ridiculous, really, because if you... I mean, I'm sure they probably made that statement in a fairly unthinking way, but um, 
the logical conclusion of that is that women should only go out late at night with a chaperone, <laughs> um, uh, which sort of brings to mind Saudi Arabia, where women are fighting. Women and men are fighting against this idea that women have to be permanently chaperoned, I mean, because it's part of their legal system. Um, and But we don't want just a, um, a tacit form of, you know, women being forced to have a chaperone. I mean... That's just ridiculous. Mm. I mean, women women have to get home. Right. You know, not everyone can afford taxis and cars and Ubers. Um, that's a ridiculous notion. We need, we in fact, what we need is lots of people using public space late at night rather than people being, you know, retreating into their homes. Um, and also, a lot of homes are not safe. As we know, that's where the majority of violence against women occurs. That's right. That's right. There's so many angles to this that you could go on and on and on, and and none of them have been actually um, taken up concretely by any of the governments um, so far. Um, hence, that um, the figure that one in three women are, um, you know, assaulted almost on a daily basis, and and deaths one one death a week, uh, and those figures haven't alerted this government, but they have to wait for women to be raped and killed, and then you find that you know it, it's it's this is. This is a phenomenon I wanted to um, probe you on. So is, is the um, other woman who was um, raped and killed, I think it was Sydney QT, a Chinese woman. And there's also um, things about, you know, Miss Dew who died in custody. So there, there are women who are being killed in, in different from different ethnic communities, and yet the outpouring is not as great. Um, I know there's, there have been some contributions to say that, oh, well, you know, Eurydice was well connected with the local community, and Jilma had a local community she could relate to. But I, I, I don't think those explanations seems to, to, to suffice in explaining what is happening in, in terms of women in general as opposed to white women be, you know, who are... Uh, who are uh, for whom mobilizations mobilization seem to occur, and yet you have women from ethnic communities where mobilizations are a little difficult to get off the ground. What is your thinking around that? Well, I think there's probably a couple of things, um, and that was certainly, you know, there was a massive mobilization around Jilma, and I noticed in the very first event after Jilma was murdered in 2012 in Brunswick. Um, and it was sort of uh, the pe- people who organised that peace march for Jilma were not political people, um, and there was no speaking, no nothing at that. And I noticed some people carrying signs about family members or friends who'd been murdered, um, in in a sense, uh, raising that very question that you're raising, Lally, and I don't know if these people were white, non-white, um, and also the question of um, violence and murders of sex workers um, can be added in as well. Um, because in that case of uh, with Juma, um, the man who murdered her, Adrian Bailey, he had previously not murdered but used extreme violence against sex workers. Mm. And the police had not taken that seriously. That's right. It's, and, it's a moral statement, isn't it, for them? Yeah, and and so I think that is true. But I, I think there's an element 
around Gilmar and around Eurydice that these are two murders of women. I'm not saying there have been, you know, yes, there have been other murders of women that haven't really, you know, sparked these sort of uh, protests. Generally, um, there haven't been these sorts of vigils and so forth around women who've been murdered in the home. Um, but I think part of it is, um, you know, because like all women and many men can relate to this um, because, you know, even women who aren't in violent and dangerous relationships and family situations, everyone can relate to the idea of, you know, because everyone has to walk home from the tram stop or the, um, or the, um, you know, bus station or wherever, um, or, or goes out late at night. So everyone, I think everyone can relate to it. Um, and also I think these two murders happened in the, in the city where, um, where there is, I mean, the left and, and progressive movement is probably stronger in these areas. And so that's probably, I think, another reason. Um, because, you know, many people who came to that vigil and many people who came to, um, especially the more political response to, um, Jill Ma's murder, the Reclaim the Night Sydney Road, most people who came along to that and also I would say the vigil have been involved in other political actions in support of refugees or Aboriginal rights. I don't think these are all people who just related because it was a white woman, but I think the left is more, and progressive movement, in a broad sense, is more organised and more confident to organise in this area. Um, but after the murder of Jill Ma, there were a number of vigils held, probably not as large, I didn't get to them all, um, when a sex worker was murdered, a female sex worker was murdered in St Kilda, and also... Uh, an, an Asian woman was murdered in Footscray uh, by her partner in public outside the court. Um, and so there have been some other vigils, public vigils, including the young woman, Masa Vukovic, um, who was in, murdered in Doncaster. And that, in contrast to the murder of Eurydice, happened in broad daylight um, in, uh, you know, a... Um, busy street but like well maybe not busy but like not a it wasn't a late at night kind of attack so I mean what it, that also shows is we have to focus on prevention rather than more law and order because you can't have a, poli a, a police person on every everywhere where someone could get attacked that's you know we'd have a massive police state but also, you know, people aren't necessarily safe from police either. Women aren't necessarily safe from police either. There have been cases where um, the police in Maribra, this is in the 90s, there was a case, there was a, uh, cases of police systematically, from the Maribra police station, systematically preying on women over a number of years who had... Um, gone to the police over, you know, um, domestic violence and, and um, s similar issues who then the police sort of preyed on. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we and, and 
we can't rely on the police. We've got to have this other focus. But you are you are very right, Lali. There has been maybe a less of an attention on, um, you know, women of minor, minority groups, in particular Aboriginal women and and Muslim women, who, you know, Muslim women would probably face a bigger threat late at night and some Muslim women, a lot of Muslim women, are feeling that they can't go out late at night and it's not because of their husbands trying to stop them going out. It's because they experience not only sexual violence and sexist comments, but also racial racial right. comments because yeah. of their faith. Yeah, I hope that political um, grouping you're talking about who are going to organise a political response to this, this murder will be more inclusive because the Aboriginal community is, uh, has been excluded in a sense or they feel excluded uh, because of the lack of response to Ms. Du's, um mm-hmm. murder by the police in the hands of the police and I, I think we, we have to look at um, a much more inclusive um, response if it's a political response it's got to be inclusive because um, Daniel Andrews said, oh, this is terrible, you know, men need to change, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't put forward a strategy as to what is it the government going to do? Is it going to put together a committee or a panel to look at, okay, what are the strategies we can use or we should implement um, to to, to, to talk about the prevention that you actually mentioned. Um, there has been no positive response in, in that vein. So, but anyway, it, I, I think we can go on all morning talking about this. So thank you so much sir, for being up so early in the morning to talk to us. And, uh, this, we need to keep this discussion going so that, you know, we can actually, uh, force, a, force a better response than what's been happening for all these years with all these figures out there, all the stats are there and it's, it's getting worse and, and, and we really have to pay attention to it. Anyway, have a good morning, Sue. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Yes, welcome back, listeners, to Green Left Weekly Radio, and that was Bob Mully, the all-famous Get Up, Stand Up, which took the world by storm when it came out first. I think it was the 70s it came out. If I, I could be wrong, I'm sure somebody will ring up and correct me. Yeah, so just an important announcement, and this actually relates to um, the interview we do later with Lydia Forp. Around, there's going to be a solidarity action at 12pm today um, outside Richard Wynne's office, which I'm pretty sure is on Brunswick Street um, in Fitzroy. Um, it's not in the, the actress kind of there. It just got announced yesterday. So, yep, it's 12pm um, outside Richard Wynne's office, which is on Brunswick Street. But sorry, I don't actually know the actual address, but it's just the one Labor MP office on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. It's pretty easy to find. Um, in fact, I always walk past it. Um, so that'll be happening at 12pm. Um, and some other things that are happening... Is- okay, so just to let comrades, um, let people know that um, the um, the SO um, slash UGL gas maintenance workers are still fighting and they've been fighting for more than a year to stop massive um, pay cuts and the anti-family roster being forced on them by... Um, by the sixth largest company in the world. Um, so you can, um, you can go to their picket line in Longford, or alternatively, you can support their picket by transferring money to the Fair Pay Fighting Fund BSB 6330016052562522. Um, so now what's happening this Thursday is there'll be a visual for 
Fahid and Refugee Week Protection Projection and Speak Out. Um, they'll be at 6pm, um, hosted by the National Gallery of Victoria, 180 Kilda Road in Southbank, and it's hosted by the Refugee Action Collective. On Sunday, there'll be a rally and march, Unite to Stop the Right, 11am at the Shreds Hall, corner of Ligon um, and Street and Victoria Street in Carlton South. Um, there'll be a forum um, next Tuesday, on the 26th of June, um, hosted by Green Left Weekly, um, which is Universal Basic Income, a Solution for Inequality. Um, this will be will feature Owen Bennett, Catherine Phelps, and Peter Boyle from Social Alliance. So it'll be at 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. Also happening next Tuesday will be a Young Town Hall, um, pup forum on how, on housing, um, and that will be at the Kathleen Sim Library and Community Centre, 251 Faraday Street, Carlton. And on Wednesday, there'll be a refugee um, fundraiser, and you're invited to join Refugee Action Collective and Tamil Feast for a fundraiser dinner. All proceedings from the booking will go to the amazing refugee chefs of Tamil uh, Feast, and there'll be a separate collection to support Rack's work. Um, so they'll be at 7pm at Sears at Stewart Street and Robert Street um, in Brunswick East. Um, on Friday, the 29th of June, there'll be a protest, no new coal, red line actions. It's time to draw a red line on the corruption, lies, and destruction of our environment by the coal industry. This June, step up the struggle for a safe, safe climate and join people across Australia taking action. We're going to march with our banner around the Flinders Street slash Johnson Street intersection for 30 hours starting at 6am. So it'll be happening at Friday, June the 29th. Um, there'll be a forum on Saturday, June the 30th, Women, Climate Justice and the Climate Movement, um, hosted by Women's Climate Justice Collective and Counteract, and they'll be at, I think you can just search for Women, Climate Justice and the Climate Movement. Um, on Friday, July the 6th, there'll be the 2018 NAIDOC March, and they'll be happening at 9am at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, 186 Nicholson Street in Fitzroy. Um, there'll be music, um, Alex Syke and Emily Wawar at the Wesley Ann, um, who are Indigenous singer-songwriters and storytellers. Em- Emily Wawar and Alex, Alice Sky are coming together for a special joint national tour, and they'll be at 8pm at the Wesley Ann, 250 High Street in Northcote. Um, from Saturday, um, July 7th to July 8th, there'll be the Australian Refugee Action Network, A. Um, conference, um, which will be at the AMF buildings, 535 Liver Street, and that's sort of happening all day from Saturday, July 7th to Sunday, July the 8th. And um, happening from July 7th to July 11th will be the Student Sustainability Conference. Um, I'm not sure if the, the location is completely confirmed yet, um, but I have on good authority that is going to be at the La Trobe University campus in Bondura. Um, on Monday, July 9th, will be a week of action um, organised by Victorian Socialists. Fix public transport in Melbourne. We are not sardines. Um, for the week starting July um, 9th, there will be leafleting at train stations and targeting train lines all around northern Met- Melbourne. We'll have stalls, flyers and even a couple of sardine-themed stunt. Full details of all the times and places will be announced soon, um, but it will be starting on J- July the 9th. 
On Wednesday, July the 18th, there'll be a public meeting, Build Homes, Not Prisons, featuring um, Aden Omar, um, Stephen Jolly, and a speaker from the Flemington Kensington Legal Centre. And this will be at the Community Hall, Affen Gardens, Public Housing Estate, 140 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, and it's hosted by Victoria Socialists and Affen Gardens Public Housing Residents Association. Um, the University of Melbourne Student Union will be organised, um, uh, as part of Winterfest, will be organising an activist history tour, um, which will be happening at 10pm outside the Union House in University of Melbourne, and it's hosted by the University um, the Environmental Collective and University of Melbourne Student Union. Um, there'll be a performance, Song and Words with Uncle Jack Charles, an evening of music and spoken word with the legendary actor, musician, potter and Aboriginal elder Jack Charles at 7pm at St. Charles Bar, Charlie Bar and Functions, 386 to 388 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Um, on Saturday, July 21st, um, there'll be a rally, Five Years Too Many, Bring Them Here. This July will mark five years since the PNG solution was announced, five years of limbo in offshore detention hellholes, two years since Manus was declared illegal, and that will be happening at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street, and it's organised by the Refugee Action Collective. Um, there'll be a public meeting, um, Prentridge Prison, um, other voice from the other side, Peter Norton, um, which will be at 1.45pm at the Moreland City Library, corner of Victoria and Louisa Street in Coburg, and it's presented by the Coburg Historical Society. Um, and also another important announcement is on Thursday, June the 28th, there'll be a Longford So Ugly One Year Tribute at 10am at Garrett's Road in Longford. Right, so that's um, pretty much um, it for the activist calendar. Okay, we've got Lydia Top online. Um, she's unwell, so we'll make this a fairly quick interview. Welcome, um, Lydia. Lydia Thorpe's a Greens uh, member uh, and for... Northcote. Northcote. I always keep thinking Batman, I don't know why. I live in Batman, that's probably It's, it's your electorate. I know, it is. Um, good morning, Lydia. Sorry to hear you unwell. Good morning. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. It's been coming for a while, I think, so yeah. I'm glad that it kind of held off until today. But it is what it is. It's been a, a tough, you know, few weeks. Yes, yeah, it's hard work, um, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, well, the treaty bill was passed late last night. So oh, okay. And um, were you happy with it? Um, it's, you know, well, it could have been a lot better. Of course, yes. Um, but we'll continue to fight for elders to, um, you know, be at the forefront. We'll continue to fight for sovereignty of clans to be acknowledged uh, and we'll continue to, you know, educate um, the government on what a real treaty process is about. Um, the definition of treaty in the legislation is quite um, weak. Mm. Um, so the Greens will keep them to account and um, will be, you know, right on their tail to ensure that um, they they come good with all the things that they said that they would through the, throughout this process. Mm, watch the space, eh? <laughs> okay, quickly, let's just get on to the 11 years since the intervention in the um, Northern Territory. Um, just wondering if, if the community is um, discussing this and what's happening in relation to doing something about it or stopping it, rather. Um, look, the Victorian um, community aren't, you know, they're, they're not um, involved in what's happening um, 
in the NT, but um, we're certainly, you know, I know the activists particularly are, are still very concerned about what um, is happening and, and, you know, stand with our brothers and sisters in the NT. I mean, the intervention, you know, both governments have allowed this to continue over the last 11 years. Mm. And there hasn't, you know, we haven't seen any good come out of the intervention. The statistics haven't changed. Our jails are still full of Aboriginal people, particularly in the NT. And, and you know, now they're starting to talk about a treaty as well, whilst um, they've taken now, taken, you know, self-determinate, sorry, self-determining rights and human rights away mm. from the, from the first people of that land. So, you know, what, what's it mean, 11 years of what, of continued genocide of our people? Um, that's, that's how I see it. Of course. And, um, yeah, we, we just, you know, there's a, there's a group of, um, there, there's a collective of people that have been against the, the intervention from day one. That collective continues. Mm. And, um, yeah, we just, what do you do? What do you do when the government, um, both sides, both major parties continue to oppress our people, um, right across the country and continue that intervention? Hmm. It's a hard one, isn't it? When, when there's such conservatism, um, emanated by both political parties and it's, it's, and the Greens being a, a, such a, for a small party, uh, while fighting for it, um, haven't been able to make any inroads into that area. Um, and, and we know that more, um, since the Dylan, the Dylan, uh, uh What's the Waller. Waller. I was going to say Waller. That's Dylan Waller's issue. It came to the fore and it sort of disappeared into the background again. So it's not a good sign. But we shall look at look at it further down the track and see if um, we can get someone from the Northern Territory to talk about it. But anyway, for thank thank you for for you know um, addressing yeah. it briefly. Um, sorry. Well, I just think you know with with your listeners, you know, people want to know what they can do for or with Aboriginal people. It's you know, it's stopping the injustice like what's happening in the Northern Territory. Yes. So when you do see a collective of of people um, trying to stand up on their own, you know, it's joining with that voice and 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 stopping this oppression that that continues. Mm. You know, we need. We had sixty thousand people march on the twenty sixth of January. We need to organise those 60,000 people to not just come out on the 26th of January but to stand with our people against these injustices mm. every day, not one day, every day. That's right. Absolutely right. Um, let's move on to another issue. I, I just didn't want to keep you on the uh, line for too long. Um, the, the protest about the birthing tree in um, the Western um, Highway of um, you know the Western Highway where the Vic Road is it's, um, yes. environmental issue. I, I just wondered if you if you're involved in that and if you could update us about what's happening there or, or even explain to listeners what that's about. What what is the birthing tree and how did that come about? Sure. sure. Well, I'm I'm not going to go into detail of the birthing tree, but there is um, there are a number of trees that are that are very significant culturally and environmentally 
along that stretch where they want to, where the government wants to widen the road. Um, there are a number of scarred trees and there are a number of trees that have been used by the Japarung people for, you know, for over 800, these trees are 800 year old and Japarung people have used these trees for that time for shelter, for cooking and and for for birthing. So these are trees that um, have been culturally modified over this time and and hold high significance um, in Japarong people's lives. So this, the trees are between Beaufort and Ararat, particularly, mm-hmm. the trees that we're talking about. Mm. Uh, and last Sunday, uh, I travelled to the area and saw for my, you know, saw for myself the amazing presence and significance of these trees. I stood with elders of, of Japarong and we've put in a number of injunctions, both state and, and federal injunctions to, to continue to protect these trees. There is a, a number of protesters at the site and that seems to be growing. Um, Vic Roads have come back and said that they'll save two of the trees um, for the next six weeks. They won't touch the trees. Um, but of course, you know, we're talking 3,000 trees will be cleared. Oh as my part goodness. Of this project. Mm. Over 250 of the trees are old growth living trees hmm. and a number of those old growth living trees uh, have major cultural significance hmm. so there's a number of um, injunctions in and we're just waiting to see um, you know what weight they will have to in continuing the protection of these trees <laughs> we've also had a um, traditional owner body so when a Japarung, I'm, I'm a Japarung woman, so these are my, you know, this is my area. Um, Eastern Ma, Tushorona body have come out, um, despite the government saying that they have supported this process. The Eastern Ma have come out and said that they haven't said that they support the process. So there's been a few, um, discrepancies in terms of what the government is saying and what, uh, the traditional owners are saying. Um, and that's evident that, you know, the government haven't done a proper process. The Labor government haven't done a proper process, a consultation process. And um, that seems to be, you know, how they operate. All the time, isn't it? Throughout the treaty process, there yep. was not a proper consultation, consultation. process with mm. grassroots. Mm. And now, whilst we're excited about a treaty treaty process going forward, they're cutting down our trees um, behind our back and and destruction of yes never ends ancient, does it? ancient mm. trees yes. this one particular tree that I went to actually two trees that I saw reminded me of um, um, you know that that show that movie that came out of um, I can't that's just escaped me now where the people were. Um, you know, their sacred tree was under threat by the developers. Um, mm. Oh, sorry. That's, that's all right. It'll come to you later. <laughs> but, yeah, but 
Yeah, that's what it put me in mind of, in that we are still fighting for this sacred... This is like a church for us, Mm. and it's about to be desecrated. Yep, yep. And and that's a good analogy for people to understand how important it is, contrary to the the wrong people. Um, So thank you so much for pointing that out to to our listeners. And I also believe that there's a group called Western Highway Conservation Group who is supporting your plight, your, your... a fight to to stop the trees being chopped back, and um, yes. um, if there's any other way, listeners can support the campaign. They can support by visiting the camp. Actually, yeah, they could. Yes. It's yeah. only a two-hour and thirty-minute drive. Yes, but I just wondered if there are any groups within the Aboriginal community, um, other than the Western um, Highway Conservation Group, that uh, Lydia knew of that that people can support. Yes, and you know. Go and visit the trees. Go and talk to the the Japarung people that are protecting these trees because you'll actually learn something and you'll learn of the significance of these trees and you'll see it for yourself. It's just truly amazing. And I think that, you know, everyone needs to see this and particularly our children need to know why it's so important to protect these trees. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much, um, Lydia. Despite being sick, uh, <laughs> lasted this long in the interview. Um, we'll 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 keep an eye on this and we'll get back and and check on progress as time goes by. I hope you get better also, soon. One, thank you so much for that, and and thanks for having me. And also, you could write to the Premier um, and the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and um, let them know that these trees need to be um, saved and they. And that, yeah, we just need to keep putting pressure on the government. Absolutely. Okay. Stop this destruction. Yep. Thank you so much, Lydia. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. That was Lydia Thorpe earlier on um, that you were listening to about um, the sacred trees between Beaufort and Ararat. So you can visit those trees, have a weekend drive, go and talk to the elders there, the Jabarong people. Um, and get to know uh, a little bit about the Aboriginal culture and, and their ways and um, the significance of those trees. So it'll be um, interesting drive anyway. So, um, <clears throat> Jacob, you had something to say? Oh, yeah, so just a, a bit of a latest um, story on um, what's happening in sort of Latin America. Um, probably listeners probably heard last week that um, Argentina... Um, I think pretty sure part has legislated or is in the process of legislating... Um, um, abortion rights, um, yes. which is really good. Um, but now, and also following that in Venezuela, um, activists, um, in Venezuela are now demanding a new, uh, a gathering in term outside the, of the Venezuela's national, national constitute assembly, um, in terms of, uh, presenting with us a series of proposals to legislate an abortion and to expand sexual and reproductive rights on June 20th. Um, and so, you know, they, um, they've kind of made the argument that, you know, these things are necessary, especially in light of the kind of economic crisis in, um, Venezuela. And of course, there's also, you know, what's also interesting in the kind of demands that are drafted up by this, um, activist organization is also a call to create a carer system, um, to avoid situations where women are forced to stay home or automatically made responsible for looking after children, um, the sicker of reality and where people do take on the role of care, there should be, you know, given proper compensation for their job, like any other job. Um, the proposal is presented by a range of um, feminist and LGBTI organisations, including La Arana Feminista, which is translated as 
Feminist Spider, the Information Network for Safe Abortion and the Left Cultural Front. Um, in terms of the question of abortion rights, uh, Arania Feminista National Coordinator Nancy Gon. Zaliz, um, Gonzalez. Told, Gonzalez, um, told Venezuela and us our pro, um, proposal is explicit. The new constitution must have an article that states that women have a right to decide over their bodies and that they can interrupt unilaterally in a voluntary way a pregnancy. And of course, the state must guarantee the abort, the option to, um, abort in secure conditions through the second week, um, 12th week, um, of See. Pregnancy. G station <clears throat> or something. Sorry. Um, and of course. Gestation. Just, yeah. And of course, <laughs> despite, um, just a bit of a more, bit of context, you know, despite the important gains for women's rights made during, um, Venezuela's pro-Bolivian revolution, you know, abortion still remains illegal in Venezuela, um, and it's p- punishable with six months to two years jail. Together with Pagri, Venezuela probably has the most restrictive abortion laws in South America. Um, but I guess it's good that, you know, ac- feminist activists are starting to get organised and to put oh, yeah. the Women's issues coming to the rise uh, internationally, and I think um, that that's really good because the feminist movement had gone through a lull for some time now, mm. and um, that's a great um, step forward. But anyway, it's time to wrap up the, <coughs> excuse me, the program. And um, let's thank Sue Bolton, who is the Moulin um, City Councillor, and, <coughs> excuse me, and, of course, uh, Lydia Thorpe, the um, Greens member for Northcote, uh, for the interviews today. And just to remind uh, listeners that this program is podcasted, and I'll do that in the next few days. Um, we also are accessible on the Internet, and if you want to listen to this program again in the next uh, couple of days, it will be actually on the website. Um, I hope you have a good day today, and I hope you enjoyed the program. And we will be on again next Friday. Um, hope you'll tune in. Thank you for listening. Bye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming